Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Transfiguration of Jesus, The Real Truth or a Pernicious Superstition. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 3rd, 2008. The story of the transfiguration of Jesus is so central to the gospel that all three synoptic writers include it, Matthew 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9. It's also a story that begs some important questions. Just what are we reading here? A fable? A myth? Or some theological metaphor? Perhaps eyewitness history? or maybe some combination of these genres? Here's Mark's version of the Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Some readers will dismiss this story as a bizarre fiction. The diatribes by atheist writers come to mind. Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, and now a new book by John Allen Paulus called Irreligion, A Mathematician Explains Why the Arguments for God Just Don't Add Up. This noisy boomlet of anti-religion books is really just a modern version of ancient disdain. In his life of Nero, Suetonius, who lived from 75 to 160, derided Christians as, quote, a set of men adhering to a novel and mischievous superstition. In his annals, the contemporary Tacitus sneered at the so-called pernicious superstitions of believers. In Pliny the Younger, who lived from 62 to 113, governor of Pontius Bithynia in what's now modern Turkey. For him, the many Christians under his rule posed a practical problem. In two famous letters to the Emperor Trajan, he expressed frustration about how to prosecute and persecute believers. Quote, I judged it so much the more necessary to extract the real truth with the assistance of torture from two female slaves who were styled deaconesses, but I could discover nothing more than depraved and excessive superstition." End quote. 
A different way to read the Transfiguration tries to have its cake and eat it too. It purges the story of offensive elements while retaining some kernel of truth. For example, interpreting the Transfiguration as an embellished tale, as a truth communicated by myth or metaphor, or even as a misplaced and reinterpreted account of the resurrection. But this strategy is easier said than done. Its tendency, as history has shown, has been to make the ancient story look and sound suspiciously like the modern critic. C.S. Lewis observed that it's a healthy exercise to own up to those elements in original Christianity that you find obscure or repulsive. When we do this, he says, we're less likely to, quote, skip or slur or ignore what we find disagreeable, end quote. Similarly, I like the advice of Harvey Cox, professor at Harvard, who cautions against encountering the sweeping vision of Christian eschatology only to whittle it down to something manageable and lackluster. Decades after the Transfiguration, Peter appealed to their terrifying experience precisely to rebut criticisms that the early believers followed cleverly invented stories as opposed to eyewitness accounts of actual events. 2 Peter 1, 16-18 Consider the details of the story. Exactly six, six days after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the identification of Mount Hermon in present-day Syria, which reaches 9,000 feet, the secluded and private nature of the incident, the palpable fear they exhibited, Peter's impulsive outburst, in their confusion about something so essential as the resurrection from the dead. All these unflattering details suggest that the evangelists were writing history and not myth or metaphor. Even if the story, like so many stories in the gospel, is easier to describe than it is to explain. It's true that people of their time and place enjoyed a worldview that's different from ours. But this doesn't mean that Christians back then were inherently more credulous than we are today. I find it hard to fathom why the evangelists would propagate a story that they knew was false and knew that their detractors could falsify, knowing that a needlessly ludicrous claim would harm their cause and knowing, as they surely did for the first 250 years of the church, that making outrageous claims would earn them only social ridicule, political marginalization, and physical persecution. Peter and the disciples would have been wrong to deny an experience that they had, no matter how bizarre or difficult it was to comprehend and explain. Whether Peter, James, and John had an ecstatic vision or whether Jesus was literally, if briefly, metamorphosed before their eyes, the natural physical phenomenon of brilliant light was in fact secondary to the supernatural metaphysical affirmation of the voice from the cloud. This Jesus whom the disciples followed was not an itinerant rabbi, a clever sage, 
He wasn't a social political provocateur, a subversive wisdom teacher, an ascetic, or a failed apocalyptic troublemaker. No, the Transfiguration portrays Jesus as the cosmic Lord of all human history. He is God's beloved and especially appointed Son. The ramifications of this, then, are obvious, as we read in Matthew 17, verse 5. Listen to him. Three marvels accompanied the transfiguration. First, Jesus' clothes radiated blinding light. Matthew compares this radiance to the brilliance of the sun, Mark to super-bleached laundry, and Luke to what he calls a flash of lightning. These descriptions evoke comparison to Moses on Mount Sinai, when Yahweh appeared to him in a cloud and a consuming fire in Exodus 24. The Apostle Paul described his famous conversion on the road to Damascus as an encounter with blinding light accompanied by a voice from heaven. Acts 22, verse 6, and Acts 26, verse 13. That testimony lends an experiential aspect to Paul's declaration that God, quote, dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. The second marvel was that Moses and Elijah appeared. In his transcendent glory, Jesus fulfills the law that Moses received, and he consummates the end of all things that Elijah was thought to harbinger. Jesus is the new Moses, a greater than Elijah. And then thirdly, the voice of God the Father from a cloud, reminiscent of the same voice at his baptism, affirms what Peter had confessed just one page earlier in the Gospel, that Jesus is God's beloved and especially appointed Son. He merits our total allegiance. Listen to him. It's easy for Christians who've become over-familiar with the Gospel texts and traditions to domesticate them and to diminish them, to tame the ineffable, trivialize the indescribable, to cut and trim God down to our size so that we can manage him. In his book, What Jesus Meant, the historian Gary Wills recaptures the radically subversive life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Quote, Jesus intended to reveal the Father to us, and to show that he is the only begotten Son of the Father. What he signified is always more challenging than we expect, more outrageous, more egregious." Quote. Wills excoriates Thomas Jefferson's scissored-down Jesus, who was little more than a mild humanitarian moralizer. In the more recent seminars, Jesus seminar scholars, whom he calls the New Fundamentalism, who end up with a bland cardboard cutout. And so the transfiguration of Jesus belies all the ways we dilute the stringent wine of the gospel. The blinding light and the voice from the clouds challenge faith that is turned tepid, perfunctory, and bored. 
In her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, Annie Dillard thus asks, quote, Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake some day and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. End quote. I can understand how some people read the Transfiguration story and, as Dillard admits, not believe a word of it. But I pray that God will save me from the safe middle ground of self-serving, domesticating deism. And now for further reflection. How do we whittle down accounts like the Transfiguration and why do you think we do that? Consider the many ways that we trivialize the gospel and domesticate God. What are the parallels between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus? Between Exodus 24 and the account of the transfiguration? Why do you think Jesus gave Peter James and John orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until he had risen from the dead. And finally, for further study, see the wonderful book by Donald McCullough, the title of which is The Trivialization of God, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. For books this week, I review Stanley Hauerwas. The title is called Matthew, the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible. Grand Rapids, Brazos, 2007, 267 pages. As I write, there are now four volumes published in Brazos's projected 40-volume series of theological commentaries on the Bible. Yaroslav Pelikan led the series with some masterful study of the book of Acts in 2005. Peter Leithart studied 1st and 2nd Kings in 2006. And Matthew Levering wrote on Ezra and Nehemiah in 2007. In the present volume, Stanley Hauerwas of Duke University tackles the Gospel of Matthew. My own experience of reading Bible commentaries has often been frustrating. Their linguistic dissection of verb tenses and technical comparisons of what other scholars have written has generally left me spiritually hungry. The Brazos series moves to theological reflection. And I have been very grateful indeed for the volumes by Yaroslav Pelikan on, on the book of Acts and the present volume by Hauerwas on the Gospel of Matthew.
Matthew's Gospel, Hauerwas reminds us, is not intended to provide mere theological information, although it does do that. Rather, it's a manual to train and transform us into disciples of Jesus. For Jesus, the Son of God, is what Matthew is all about, says Hauerwas. In contrast to the many ways that we sentimentalize the gospel, the kingdom that Jesus announced is nothing less than a radically subversive and alternate way of life. The Jesus way unmasks our own deep anxieties, our denials of our dependency, the legitimating stories of our modern world, in our doomed attempts to secure our own illusory salvation on our own terms by work, politics, money, sex, power, reputation. The list is endless. There is a kind of madness, says Hauerwas, with being a disciple of Jesus. Hauerwas takes a simple approach to his organization, devoting one chapter to each chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Readers who are familiar with his many other works will not be surprised to find heavy doses of Augustine, Bart, Bonhoeffer, and John Howard Yoder. Hauerwas is at his prophetic best in pointing us to the disruption and offense provoked by the gospel. On the third page of his book, he observes that after Jesus, there is no normal, or put differently, after Jesus, we are able to live normally only because of his extraordinary work. And then on the next to the last page, he writes, The problem, after all, is not belief in the resurrection, but whether we live lives that would make sense if, in fact, Jesus has not been raised from the dead. The way of discipleship, then, is difficult, but it's not dismal. Rather, it's the only true way of genuine human joy. Stanley Hauerwas, Matthew, the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible, from the year 2007. For film this week, I review Hairspray, from the year 2007. From its opening song, to its closing moral, this musical period piece succeeds in every way. Set in urban Baltimore in 1962, Tracy Turnblad is an overweight but vivacious teenager who dances in front of her TV as she watches the Corny Collins show. If only she could have such a life. When the show has an opening, she auditions. She gets the part and, to the chagrin of the cool crowd, causes the show's ratings to skyrocket. Tracy is irrepressible and impossible not to love. She also has an eye for fairness, like dumping the show's Negro Day. She adds a gentle but direct moral to the musical. Looking back to 1962, the film deconstructs any number of prejudices, including race, gender, class, media, family, friendship, and especially body image. When Tracy begs her obese mom, played by John Travolta, 
to be her agent, she declines since she has hardly left the house in decades. But Tracy insists, Mom, it's changing out there. You'll like it. People who are different, their time is coming. And so Tracy's mom leaves the house and exclaims, There's so much air out here. Hairspray is fun, energetic, nostalgic, and, believe it or not, even meaningful. With a PG rating, it makes for fun family viewing and good discussion. Hairspray, from the year 2007. And finally, for poetry, we've begun a series of poems by George Herbert. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633. The title of George Herbert's poem this week is called Affliction. Broken in pieces all asunder, Lord, hunt me not, a thing forgot. Once a poor creature, now a wonder. A wonder tortured in the space betwixt this world and that of grace. My thoughts are all a case of knives, wounding my heart with scattered smart. As watering pots give flowers their lives, nothing their fury can control while they do wound and prick my soul. All my attendants are at strife, quitting their place unto my face. Nothing performs the task of life. The elements are let loose to fight, and while I live, try out their right. O oh, help my God, let not their plot kill them in me and also thee, who art my life. Dissolve the knot, as the sun scatters by his light all the rebellions of the night. Then shall those powers which work for grief enter thy pay, and day by day labor thy praise in my relief. With care and courage building me, till I reach heaven, and much more, thee. From the poet from Wales, George Herbert, Affliction. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 3rd, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.